HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Laura Stanley, and if you are working inside school food, you've come to the right place. Each week, I bring you helpful and constructive conversations with your peers around critical topics in K-12 food service. Today, we're going to be talking about kitchen equipment. What do we have? What do we need? And how the heck can we go on doing without under new requirements for more and more perishable produce that staff need to safely store, prepare, portion, and serve? School districts have precious little to spend on kitchen equipment. Uh, many listeners know that while well, it happened in 2009 when the USDA provided new funding for the first time in 30 years, uh, $125 million, primarily through the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. It sounded like a lot of money at the time, except when the SFA grant requests came rolling in to the tune of $630 million. That was five times the amount on offer. So the unnet need was clearly huge. And that's where my first guest comes in. Uh, Jessica Donza-Black is the director of the Kids Safe and Healthful Foods Project, a joint initiative of the Pew Charitable Trust and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. In December 2013, her team released the results of an exhaustive survey of equipment needs in school districts from coast to coast. Jessica is going to tell us about how the study was conducted, what it un- uncovered, and some of the things uh, the Kids Safe and Healthful Foods Project is recommending that we do as action steps. Um, in the second half of the show, we'll be hearing from John Dickel, who is Director of School Nutrition for Knox County, Tennessee Public Schools, and he'll be talking about what physical change in the kitchen and cafeteria 
looks like in his district. So, Jessica, welcome. Um, Thanks. So you've had a pretty remarkable career thus far. Uh, Before coming to the Kids Safe and Healthful Food Project, you served as the National Director of the Healthy Schools Program Mm -hmm. at Bill Clinton's Alliance for a Healthier Generation. Uh, You were the first Executive Director of the American Heart Association's campaign to end obesity. You hold a master's in public health and, and once upon a time served as a clinical nutritionist at DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware. I know I'm missing some details in between, but I think I think our audience will get the idea that you're very deeply committed to child nutrition and health. So your report, um, it's 95 pages long and includes responses from 3,347 districts. Um, what did you set out to accomplish with this? Yes, it is a rather deep dive into both schools' readiness to implement updated standards and then more importantly, what challenges they were facing. Our project really comes at this issue from the perspective that we want schools serving healthy and nutritious food, but we know that's not always easy. And we wanted to make sure we had some understanding around what those challenges might be that they're facing and then ultimately how to move forward, how to how to meet those challenges and be able to actually serve healthy and delicious foods that kids will eat. Right, right. And and you were able to get access to a very good cross section of districts in terms of the size and place the populations served. Can you tell us about that? It was extremely intentional. We wanted to make sure that we had information that was representative across districts that were small, medium, large in size, that were in different parts of the country, that had various student populations. And that's because we recognized that there may have been differences among them. So ultimately, it was a really large sample size was sort of the answer to that. We also had representative um, data for every state. So we made sure that we sampled enough people in every state to be able to say something not just about the national picture, but about those state pictures as well. Right, right. And I know on your website, which I'll I'll tell people about uh, shortly, that, that there's state by state reporting um, out of out of what you did. So you can go in there and, and look at your state and see how you line up against others. So uh, there's there's a lot of info online. Um, so what are some of the study's key findings about equipment needs? Well, I think the first big finding was that you know 94% of districts indicated they were going to be able to meet updated nutrition standards within that first year of implementation. And reality has actually borne that out, that about 90% are meeting the updated nutrition standards. So we've got, we always have to start with that good news. Like, mm-hmm. that is impressive. On the flip side, 88% of districts indicated they actually needed some piece of equipment. There was a broad range, ranging you know, from very small things to hundreds of thousands of dollars of needed equipment, but the reality was the vast majority needed something in order to really improve the service that they were offering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so 90% in compliance with new meal standards, and, and yet, you know, we're talking about equipment needs that run so, so deep. I mean, it, it, it sort of percentage-wise, you know, the, of the districts you looked at, how many were, were seriously strapped um, and, and having, you know, real issues in, in uh, get, you know, achieving compliance? Yeah, closer to a third indicated that the equipment specifically was more of a barrier. You know, it was actually sort of blocking their path forward. Although most of those said that at least in the short term, they were using some sort of a workaround. And in many cases, that may have been less efficient or more expensive, things like having to get multiple deliveries or rent off-site storage or, you know, using sort of makeshift things like the cooler somebody left behind to store the produce in until we could actually get the refrigerator we need. So there were things that they didn't see as sustainable. Sustainable in the 
long run, but they were kind of working through it just in order to to serve what they had to serve in the short term. Right, right. You you spend a lot of time talking about workarounds in your report. Um, you know, any any other examples that would be familiar to our listeners of you know coping. Sure. I mean, some, some things that are simple, like if you're serving fruits and vegetables, often kids will eat them more and more quickly if you serve them chopped up. Well, if you have a sectionizer, which is, you know, a kind of a large scale the slicer, you can do that very, very efficiently. However, if you don't, you're going to be using knives and cutting boards, and then that's more labor time and, you know, more prep time and, and also changes quality at the output. So that's another workaround we, we heard a lot about. Another one was just limiting menus. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there could only have so much storage, so much preparation space, and so often that meant fewer choices, just not getting to offer as much variety on the line because you didn't have space to necessarily prepare it. Right, right. And and on your on on your website you've got a, a fabulous uh line drawing of a kitchen that identifies some critical pieces um that that really make a difference. What are some other some other items that um are critical in in, in a school setting? Yeah, interestingly enough, a lot of what we found that people indicated they needed weren't necessarily really expensive things. A great example is a utility cart. Mm-hmm. And for all those who use them, you recognize the tons of uses. But we've had to sort of explain that to people outside of the school food service arena, that that's, that increases efficiency tremendously in terms of moving things in and out of walk-in refrigerators, moving things around the kitchen, being able to move things to the service line and back. So seems simple, but in fact is, is really important. Similarly, if people were also offering breakfast or other things, having you know those types of things that could move things were important, things like salad bars mm-hmm. so that they could offer food in more creative ways, space at the, at the serving line, you know, having enough space to be able to serve the varieties of fruits and vegetables and foods um, that, that people wanted. So I think, you know, lots of things that don't necessarily seem very complex, but could be. And then, of course, more expensive items like combi ovens, which mm-hmm. for many schools can be the difference maker between using or not you know, not using or or not being tempted to use their deep fat fryer if they used to have one in terms of the type of preparation they can do. Right, right. And in surveying this district, did you find that there was a, a, a high level of awareness of what's the, the latest, most efficient um, kind of equipment for an institutional uh, kitchen? We didn't ask the questions, not necessarily that it would unveil that. What we did very specifically was go through, and, and for the poor people who filled out the survey, it was a very intense, long survey because we were really getting in detail. So what we went through was each type of requirement that, that they had to serve, variety and amount of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, you know, lean proteins, et cetera. And then based on input we'd had from a, a group that helped us write the survey, that helped us develop the survey instrument, we had listed all the different pieces of equipment that one might need anywhere from the procurement or the storage of that food all the way through the preparation or the processing to the service. Mm -hmm. And then what folks did was indicate within their district how many of each of those they thought they needed in order to have what they ultimately needed to serve things um, in the way they intended to do so. So they, they, they weren't freehand writing things such that they would come up with innovative, creative things. It was really more selecting from the list what they thought was most important. Right, right. And then I know as, as part of your, your process while you were working on the study that you had a convening of, an, of a number of, of, you know, potential stakeholders in this issue in Chicago. Was that last spring? Last summer, Last summer, we okay. had the, the initial results from our survey, and we had not released them yet. But in looking at them, we recognized that there was clearly a lot of need, and we thought it would be much more constructive to tell people about that need while also being able to tell people about potential ways of meeting that need. And so we brought the convening together with 
a range of stakeholders, as you noted, from food service directors to architects to kitchen designers to nonprofits to foundations, all kinds of people who had worked in this space to come together and say, okay, what are the creative solutions that people have embraced in order to meet their equipment and infrastructure needs? And then if we all put our brains together and think, what else could be done? How else do we do this? And that was the intent of the convening. Right. And it's kind of a, you know, the first of its kind, having having people who are using the equipment in, in a K-12 setting, talking to the manufacturers who are in touch with what's state-of-the-art. Yeah, it was, it was extremely fun from the perspective of getting all of those interesting ideas together and, you know, having a food service director say, you know, what we could really use and a manufacturer say, oh, my goodness, we've been thinking of that. You know, yeah. so I think it does kind of it is it is a bit of a brain trust to bring those folks together. And I think although the purpose really for those coming together was to be able to get some ideas out that could then be shared more broadly, I think most people who attended will say they also went home with some new learnings and some new ideas just yeah. based on what they'd heard from others in the room. Right, right, right. So. Um, I have, so I, you know, I, I said that your report is 95 pages, but in fact, most of that is like tables, notes, sample questionnaires, and so forth. So it, it's really not too much for even a very busy person to check out. And there's some really helpful stuff in there. Um, for instance, page 15, you lay out some strategies for funding new equipment purchases and then, then putting them to use in the most cost-effective manner. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And these are ideas that really came out of our convening and bringing people together who were doing this. And some of them, what we tried to do is sort of bucket these ideas based on things that had things in common. So for instance, you know, making sure you're taking advantage of all the discounts possible and how you're buying if you're using sort of bonuses or if you're using um, how you're working with suppliers to make sure rebates and things are being invested in the equipment. But then on the flip side, the other side is looking at how can you increase revenue? You know, there there aren't a lot of restaurants that could function with a healthy budget if they served one meal a day. Mm-hmm. And so if a school is genuinely serving one meal a day, it's going to be hard to have the resources to build a really robust kitchen. So thinking about expanding that, are you serving breakfast? Are you serving supper if you have an eligible population? Are you serving after-school snack with programs who are housed in the school. But in some cases, our schools went well beyond that. They were running catering programs and serving other folks in the school district or even beyond the school district. They were serving for local child care centers. And by working together to bring in those sources of revenue, not only did that help them, you know, build the resources in order to improve their kitchens for all of those purposes, but it was also really a win-win for the communities because very often those were food service needs that existed that those outside organizations also didn't necessarily have the means to to address. So looking mm-hmm. to some of those opportunities can be really helpful. Right, right. And is, if a district needs to buy equipment, a little or a lot, let's focus on the lot. You know, where's the funding? You know, what are, what are some streams of funding to, to start with? The good news in the last couple of years is that Congress has gotten back into the habit of appropriating some funding. So two years ago, there was $10 million made available to states for competitive grants to districts. Last year, there was $25 million made available, um, and that's coming through the state level. So that's one piece of the puzzle, that districts can actually apply for those grants from their states. Very often, then, if they look at that funding as a means of leveraging other funding, looking for private 
public partnerships can be a great opportunity. A lot of times um, there may be local businesses who are very interested in the mission of school foods and are willing to meet halfway and say, for instance, fund the salad bar or help with the refrigeration or other or other means. So, you know, learning to ask is, is one piece of the question. And then obviously, if you can build up your program to increase revenue resources, that also will help with the funding long term. Right, right, right. Um, so, you know, Let's talk then about another a big piece of legislation that's winning its way through committee right now, the School Food Modernization Act. Um, you know, what, what's that about and what kind of hope does that offer for additional funding for, for equipment purchase? The School Food Modernization Act is a bipartisan legislation that's been introduced in both chambers by bipartisan pairs, so by Congressman Latham and McIntyre in the House and by Senators Collins and Heidkamp in the Senate. And what it really does is put some legs under this appropriations that we've seen the last couple of years to authorize funding for grants in order to make sure that hopefully that continues forward and also set some parameters to that funding to make sure that, that it is made available really specifically for the needs that schools have. It also sets up a guaranteed loan fund, and this would be something that could be accessed by any school in the country, regardless of size, regardless of geographic location. And those funds would be something that if a school district really wanted to make a bigger purchase, be it an infrastructure change or a big equipment purchase, where they may want to finance it over time, they could get a guaranteed loan from the federal government, which allows them a much lower interest rate and to pay back over a long period of time. third piece of the bill is actually around training and technical assistance, because the other thing that, that our survey showed is that one of the biggest barriers schools have to implementing updated standards and serving healthy meals was just training, was just making sure everyone from the person on the front line all the way to the person in the back office understands what they need to do in kind of the best way forward. And so putting some additional resources into training and technical assistance so that it can be available closer to the places where people are actually operating around the country. Right, right. And and tell me, how, how can our listeners who want to find out more about the School Food Modernization Act, uh, you know, where can they go to find out more? And if, you know, what can they do to support um, this bill, um, you know, and get it out of committee and um, see the light of day? Yes, yeah, so I would certainly encourage you to come to our website um, and and learn more about it there. We, you can, there's also always a way to take action. If you sign up for our action alerts at healthyschoolfoodsnow.org, we will keep you posted as things emerge and make sure that um, you know when when's a great opportunity to weigh in. And certainly we also do um, a newsletter on a regular basis to let folks know what's moving and, and where there's opportunity. And so that, I promise it's not too often, but that would be another way of staying informed as things move forward. Okay, well, I'm going to do that for sure. Great. (laughs) Well, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. This has been Jessica Donza-Black from the the Kids Safe and Healthful Foods Project at the Pew Charitable Trust. Um, And before we go to station break, I just want to remind everyone that Inside School Food is on Facebook, uh, and you can go there to find a link to the study that uh, Jessica has been telling us about. And elsewhere on uh, her project's website, you'll find a terrific portfolio of school food success stories, which is recommended reading if you're looking for good ideas or just a boost to your morale. Um, and as Jessica said, you can also click on Take Action right on their website um, to to read more about this proposed additional federal funding for kitchen modernization and staff training. Um, and Jessica, I, I'm sure there's going to be more to talk about regarding that going forward, so I look forward to having you back on Inside School Food. 
Thank you. It's been a pleasure. All right. Next up, John Dickel from Knox County, Tennessee. So don't go away. Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will too. And I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Welcome back to Inside School Food. I'm your host, Laura Stanley. Today we're looking at kitchen equipment deficit in schools nationwide and the strain this places on SFAs as they work to meet the demands of the new regulations. I'm very pleased to have with me John Dickel, who is an accomplished food, school food service director who's also an MBA with 33 years of experience in food service and not just school food service, but also in restaurants, country clubs, distribution, and manufacturing sales. In Knoxville, uh, John is serving 59,000 students in 85 schools, bringing in uh, $26.7 million in revenue annually. Uh, and he's working with a free and reduced rate of 52.5%. So, hey, John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah. So you've been with Knox County for four years now, right? This is my fourth school year, absolutely. Okay. Um, I know when you started there, you had a lot to turn around in your kitchens and dining area, so I was pretty amused when you told me that your favorite TV show is Restaurant Impossible. Um, <laughs> you must really like what you do. Um, <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do. What do you, what uh, do you, you know, get out of watching Restaurant Impossible? And, uh, yeah, and Restaurant Impossible is always full of challenges. I, I don't know how many people actually get to watch the show, but... Um, I love stealing the new ideas. Uh, you know, he's. I love stealing new ideas, and I've stolen a few. And uh, what I really like about the show is how to create treasures out of items that were on the verge of being trashed. And uh, Robert Irvine, the chef on the show, transforms these dilapidated and underfunded restaurants into these beautiful dining establishments in two days and a ten thousand dollar budget. And that's pretty much what a lot of school nutrition directors like me are, are trying to do on a daily basis. Right, right. So it's like a, a busman's uh, holiday kind of TV show for you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so when, when you got to Knox County, you know, was there anything about the job that felt impossible to you? Well, you know, one of the things I was committed to, we, we have 85 serving sites, and I was committed to visiting each site my first 60 days on the job. And, um, and I swore I wasn't going to come in guns a-blazing when I started off in Knox County. But when I went out, I saw a lot of yellow, brown, and orange uh, food. And unfortunately, the only things that I saw that were green and red was the equipment. I had a lot of avocado green refrigerators, and the red that I saw was rust and duct tape. And I had a dishwasher that was put into service in 1964 that was splashing people and and uh, saw a lot of uh, 1970s-era serving lines and uh, 35-, 40-year-old cafeteria tables. And I had a 
repair budget that was uh, well exceeding my equipment replacement budget. So, wow, uh, what'd you do? I mean, what was your first step, I should, I should ask? Well, the first step I had to do was I really had to grade all the, all the equipment district-wide, and I had to prioritize uh, what was uh, supposed to be replaced. Um, and I knew that I had needed to severely increase my investment in equipment replacement. So I started to have to prioritize. I basically created an equipment replacement plan, um, had to decide what would be uh, kept, what would be disposed of, um, and that kind of kind of how I got started. Um, as a result, we've invested nearly four million dollars over the past four school years to, uh, to upgrade our equipment and infrastructure. And some of the investments weren't to encourage participation; some were to make our schools independent, no longer have food transported from another school because we knew that we wanted to improve food quality. And some were to accommodate the changes in food items produced in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this year alone, we purchased new serving lines for five schools. Um, we have bought gently used serving lines, uh, and we even refurbished a few of our own, and I'll talk about that later. It's kind of my own restaurant impossible right. uh, mission that I did. Um, and we installed walk-in coolers and freezers at seven breakfast and classroom sites so that schools would be able to produce all foods on site and be better equipped to handle the significant increase in meals that are served at those sites. Right, right. So that, that's a huge amount of investment. Um, and when, when we spoke earlier, you talked about that being offset by a growth in revenue. Uh, can you tell me how that worked? Sure. Um, we've seen a growth in participation in annual revenue. Uh, we were at $23 million in revenue in 2011, and we're projecting over $27 million uh, this coming school year in 2015. Um, you know, we we looked at some of our other areas where we could improve efficiencies. We uh, changed the way that we did our procurement model so that we could divert more resources to uh, equipment. Uh, we looked at uh, some areas of waste and really tried to improve upon those, uh, minimizing those. And we looked at alternative methods like I shared, you know, being able to purchase used equipment that was still in great shape and also try to refurbish some existing lines. Right, right. Maybe cosmetically poor, but were uh, fine equipment-wise. Right, right. As, uh, so so with, with, with the improvements in equipment, how did that, you know, how was that reflected on what was on the tray? Well, you know, one of the things that we did is uh, we had to, we knew that we needed to improve equipment to be able to accommodate more whole grain offerings. We knew we had to improve equipment to accommodate the use of more fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, we we focused less on canned products, and uh, so we had to maybe purchase food processors. I shared the additional refrigeration. Um, we knew that the whole grain items that we were preparing would uh, perform better both the first time they were heated and if we had to reheat an item mm-hmm. uh, by using a combi oven or some kind of other alternative method that produced steam. Um, and so we began looking at combis and less expensive uh, items, you know, cooking items such as there's some ovens that do a steam injection instead of being a full combi. So we looked at some of that. Um, and even, you know, the kit study references the need for cutting boards and carts, um, even having to uh, look at uh, – purchasing more cutting boards, more chef's knives, and actually trying to get the folks to use them. Right, right. Yeah, well, t- tell me about that. When you said something about to me earlier about uh, staff being used to cutting with you know, knives from the dollar store um, and using the back <laughs> of a roasting pan for cutting board. I mean, <laughs> how did they make the transition to better stuff? Well, you know, um, 
Uh, one of the things that I said uh, before is that there's a culture in school nutrition of doing without, especially in regards to equipment and small wares. Um, last year, even though I encouraged my managers to get what they needed, um, I went to a school and one of our team members was chopping an onion with a paring knife on an upside-down tray. Mm. So they had a serving line tray turned upside-down chopping with a paring knife. I asked the manager, I said, uh, you know, we've got cutting boards, we've got chef's knives, why don't you go ahead and order them? And the manager said, well, it's just too expensive to order that kind of thing. So um, so I went back to my office and I immediately ordered four, the four different color cutting boards and uh, ordered chef's knives and sent them out to every school. Um, but still, even as recently as a few weeks ago, I went by a school and they were chopping on an upside-down sheet pan, even though they had cutting boards that were close by and they could have used the cutting boards. Um, so uh, it's, I think it's still just a, a culture issue that we're still trying to get folks to, to realize that we want to spend the resources and be able to provide them the resources so that they can produce uh, these fresh fruits and vegetables in a uh, speedy and appropriate manner. Right. Right, right. So you talked earlier about purchasing used um, and renovating existing. Um, let, let, let's talk about that a little bit. When you purchase used equipment, where were you getting it from, and what kind of shape was it in? Well, I um, there are some districts um, that are um, in this area that have have always had equipment plans, um, and so they were pretty much staying on top of their equipment needs. And so I have a friend of mine that's a director in, uh, in uh, a county about uh, uh, in Middle Tennessee, and she told me that she had some serving lines that she was going to be replacing a couple serving lines a year over the next few years, and the serving lines are less than 10 years old. Well, as I shared earlier, I have some serving lines that are uh, late 60s, early 70s, serving lines. And so I saw the opportunity to be able to purchase those those lines. And so she was able to sell them uh, to me within my bid threshold and my procurement uh, requirements. And so these serving lines are in beautiful shape. Uh, they look current. And so in my equipment replacement plan, I've identified a uh, phase one and phase two. So the phase one are the units that are 40 to 50 years old that I am replacing. And so it enables me to to put a more modern, uh, up-to-date, more attractive, and more efficient serving line, uh, electric, you know, uh, fuel efficiency um, than what I had previously. Right, right. That's great. And then, and then the coolest part of your story um, is the Restaurant Impossible piece where you you tell, tell tell me how you involved your uh, your high school shop classes in uh, in doing some some really attractive renovation on old lines. Well, what we did is I had a uh, two serving lines that we pulled out. We we have house brands. Uh, we've developed some house brands, and one of my house brands is Gianni's of Knoxville. It's my Italian house brand, and we took some old serving lines out of some schools that we were in the process of. You know, as we've done this new line and, and uh, used line replacement that were cosmetically inferior, but we're still, you know, we had replaced the steam wells over the last few years, and so mechanically they were still in good shape. Well, I had seen this uh, on Restaurant Impossible. I had seen them replace some uh, some different pieces of equipment and using wallboard as a method. So... Um, uh, my equipment specialist and I went to Lowe's, and we spent about $500 on wallboard, faux-stone wallboard. And so we put faux-stone wallboard on the outside of the serving lines so that the serving lines actually look like an Italian 
themed concept <laughs> and 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 then the students uh, in the welding class helped us with welding so that we could hang signage, uh, helped us uh, with some of the renovation piece of the outside of the unit. So all said and told, we had a combined total of maybe $650 total in uh, refurbishing three serving lines. And it made it look like the serving lines are brand new. Um, and the students think they have this really cool kiosk. We, uh, we put one of them in our science, technology, engineering, and mathematics schools, and that school's participation has jumped by nearly 20% just because of that extra serving line. Wow. And, uh, and students are drawn to it. Yeah, yeah. So it looks hip, and it's student-made, so they must feel pretty good about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we try to get students involved in a lot. We, we, do, we do some production uh, a couple times a year. We do some special events with our culinary students, and um, we have had them involved in brand development. We even had a complete rede- redesign of a dining area at one of my high schools uh, where the students did the architectural design for the tables and dining area as far as what kind of graphics were going to be used. They did all the graphics for the entire uh, dining area, and uh, one of those serving lines was put into that dining area also. Yeah, fabulous. Well, I, I I look forward to hearing more going forward about how you're involving your kids. It's very creative and a wonderful way to um, make them feel part of your school food service. Well, thank you. Yeah, so John Dickel of Knox County, Tennessee uh, Public Schools, it's been a pleasure having you on today. Um, Thank you for having me. uh, Yeah. And uh, you've been listening to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I am Laura Stanley. Please remember to check us out and like us on Facebook and tell us what you think while you're there. And uh, join us next week when we visit with the good people at the unique and remarkable D.C. Central Kitchen serving schools in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.